0: Hello, and welcome to the latest ClearBridge podcast. This is Jeff Scholze, CFA Investment Strategist at ClearBridge Investments. ClearBridge is a global equity manager with $184 billion in assets under management committed to delivering long-term results through authentic active management. We integrate ESG considerations into our fundamental research process across all strategies. Thank you for joining us ahead of the Memorial Day weekend which marks the unofficial start of what we all hope will be a more normal summer when we can shed our masks, head to the beach, a baseball game, or maybe even an outdoor barbecue with friends and family. At ClearBridge, a few of us, me included, have grown weary of days full of Zoom calls and WebEx appearances and are really looking forward to seeing our colleagues again. One of the key things that has helped keep us productive through the last 15 months is software. It's allowed us to communicate and collaborate in new ways like conducting this podcast virtually since last April. Software has supported a boom in e-commerce and helped businesses overall stay efficient and competitive. This led to strong performance for software stocks that lasted through much of 2020, but since the first positive news on the vaccines last November, software and most technology related stocks have trailed the more cyclical areas of the market. We believe this sell-off could mark only a temporary setback for a software industry that is positioned to offer some of the best revenue and earnings growth going forward. Joining me today to discuss the state of software are Hilary Frisch, a Senior Technology Software Analyst at ClearBridge, and Matt Lilling, a Portfolio Manager for the ClearBridge MidCap, MidCap Growth, and SmidCap Growth Strategies. Hilary, Matt, thanks for joining me here in the virtual booth. Thanks for
1: having us.
0: Netscape founder and prominent venture capitalist, Mark Andreessen, wrote presciently 10 years ago that software is eating the world. We'll assess many parts of the economy where software is making a difference in today's podcast, why software will continue to eat the world. And prior to the podcast, I had an opportunity to read why software is eating the world. And I really wish I'd read it 10 years ago because basically everything that Mark laid out came true. There's more and more businesses and industries that are being run on software and delivered as online services from anywhere from movies to agriculture to national defense. And he wrote that technology companies would be invading and overturning a lot of the industry structures and predicted that over the next decade, that there's going to be more industries that would be disrupted by software than not. And that's obviously become true. He mentioned Amazon, Google, LinkedIn, uh, also Salesforce, to name a few. I feel like if I had read this at the beginning of last cycle, I'd probably be on the fast track to early retirement. And it, it does appear that one of the positive consequences of the pandemic, was this software trend that was clearly in place was greatly accelerated. Now, Hillary, tell us a little bit about the drivers of why software outperformed so much in 2020.
1: Thanks, Jeff. So, well, you alluded to some of it already, but I think of early 2020 with the onset of COVID as what I call the great reveal, where the world knew that anything that was going to get done was going to get done remotely and therefore digitally through software. So it was, as you point out, already well understood that software was going to be the future, and all things cloud and SaaS, or software as a service in particular, but COVID and remote work really lit a fire under those imperatives and solidified customer adoption plans. So while traditional industry was struggling with shutdowns, software fundamentals held in fairly strongly, and as impressively, valuations reached levels never seen before with the exception of the 2000-2001 period. So this was an anticipation of strong future results and also reflected a perceived lack of investment alternatives in the in the rest of the economy. In fact, it, it got to the point where the five most highly valued software names reached nearly 60 times forward 12-month revenues, not earnings, but revenues. And that was versus the previous peak from 2019, which was closer to 30 times as we were becoming aware that software was eating the world. So it was double that level. So and a very dramatic example of that was Snowflake, which is the leader in cloud data warehousing, which exceeded 100 times for consensus revenues. In fact, it was closer to 150 times. Snowflake is a superlative company that's far outgrowing the rest of the industry at scale, but it and COVID helped to usher in a new valuation paradigm. But to summarize, software's outperformance was really a function of a remote work or work from home or shelter in place, whatever you want to call it, and be an already strong trend toward digital transformation and everything that enables that, coupled with a uh, lack of perceived you know other place for investors to put their money at least in early 2020.
0: Yeah, maybe maybe a little bit of Tina, if you will. You know, outside of the markets getting ahead of themselves, maybe there are other headwinds that you've talked about called the reopening trifecta. Talk to me about what the reopening trifecta actually is and, and maybe talk about the inflation risk potentially to the software industry.
1: Sure, sure. Okay, so the reopening trifecta refers to the other side of that paradigm or the other side of that hill, so to speak. And it reflects the fact that entering this year in particular – first we we do now have viable investment alternatives in the form of real economy stocks as i refer to them fondly you know for the first time in a while second we have tougher comps for software at least at least versus the rest of the economy and there's also the possibility that upon reopening some software based initiatives could start to elongate a little bit you know as folks get distracted so far we're not seeing that though at all and third rising interest rates. This is perhaps most important. And rising interest rates are the result of an improving economy and all the stimulus we've pumped into the, systems, into the system. But interest rates drive the discount rate that we use to discount cash flows back to the present. And since most software companies now operate on some kind of subscription basis, higher interest rates translate into a lower present value of those future cash flows. That, in turn, equates with a lower stock price. We've seen this influence on valuations year-to-date, particularly for higher multiple names. But we've also seen a decent rebound off the lows of late, too, favoring growth. So it's an interesting paradigm. But, but that's what I was referring to with the uh, reopening trifecta.
0: And that makes sense, right? The 10-year Treasury rose to about 1.75%. Now, today, it's closer to one5 one55 So obviously, a, a move back into that area. Matt, let's move over to you. Are you seeing similar factors impacting a lot of the small and mid-cap software names that, that you and the team follow?
2: You know, Jeff, in addition to some of the companies that Hillary's talking about that have slowed after a massive digital acceleration from the pandemic, we're seeing, it depends on the vertical, we're seeing some trends that took a backseat over that time period to more important priorities. Think about something like back-office spending. If you were a bank and you were doing a core software implementation, or if you were a company doing an HR management implementation like Workday, you might have pushed that. We've seen some weakness there. When you talk to these companies and their management teams, like some, there are early reports that those things are starting to come back, but we haven't seen them in the company numbers yet. Also, it depends what verticals your companies are in. So we've talked to companies like Aspen Technologies whose end markets are in the chemical industry and refineries. And we're seeing those companies, those end markets are under duress, either between supply chains being really tight from the reopening, plus the winter storm that caused a lot of havoc in the Gulf Coast. And so some companies like that are trying to manage challenging supply chains, and they're trying to repair damaged balance sheets from a difficult 2020. So even though those are software adoptions that might have a positive ROI and increase efficiency for them right now. They just can't, they don't have the bandwidth to think about adding things like that as they try to you know, just keep the business going. So we think that towards the middle and the back half of the year, some of those headwinds should start to normalize. Companies will resume those digital transformations.
0: Now, now Matt, I'm going to interrupt you there for a second. I rarely interrupt anybody during their answer, but you, you mentioned the buzzword that has been in the industry for the last couple of years with digital transformation. What is it and where is it happening and how is software playing a lead role in
2: digital transformation? Jeff, the small and mid-cap team at ClearBridge for the last 10 or 15 years has been looking for innovative companies with technologies that can disrupt industries and take market share. The trend of digital disruption, digital disrupting an analog process is a pretty basic example of that. We've seen that countless times. So there are a lot of processes that were transforming to digital and the pandemic accelerated like DocuSign for e-signature and contract management, a company called Chegg, which is a platform for digital education services, or Five9, which is a cloud-based contact center. And you could see how a lot of those businesses would have been accelerated during the pandemic. But it's not just pandemic-based. So coming out into the reopening with inflation pending, Companies trying to navigate tight supply chains, companies like Coupa, who can help companies optimize their procurement management and increase monetization by selling adjacent payment management modules, is going to likely see some success. Or there's other companies like newly public Procore Technologies, who's introducing software for digitally nascent industries like the construction industry these industries have been almost exclusively been operated under manual processes using post-its, microsoft excel and just having a central location to optimize things like delivery of supplies, having a place where you can, you know, pay your vendors in an organized fashion and keep track of receipts and just manage the whole process of a con- of a large construction project which has so many different Add-ons and, and and elements to it really increases efficiency and returns. You know, I I did mention Aspen already, but I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about them again. It's a company that optimizes the production processes for refineries and chemical facilities. So as different tasks that they do migrate from spreadsheets onto their software, it saves these companies a lot of money. But the other thing that it has is it has a positive impact. When companies like those are being more efficient, it has a positive impact on
0: environmental outcomes as well. Yeah, construction, refineries, chemical facilities, those are generally industries that I don't associate with digital transformation. Hillary, do you have anything to add on digital transformation?
1: Thanks. Well, Matt really covered it well. I would just add that digital transformation, as we think of it classically, sort of started with front office applications like the Salesforce automation and call center applications that Salesforce provides, the inbound marketing offerings of a HubSpot, Adobe's marketing automation offerings, and it's extended to so many, er- so many different areas ad hoc, generalized workflow, IT workflows, digital signatures, as Matt mentioned, uh, starting to pick up in back office spending for cloud ERP, financial management applications. And I'd say analytics, analytics, analytics. Analytics were always strong, but the combining analytics and workloads in the cloud can solve, you know, huge problems, big and small. There are a lot of vendors who benefit, but it, it's exciting. Digital transformation, I guess, to Matt's point, is really touching every every corner of the economy in some way.
0: Now, there's a big concern out there that the work-from-home environment during the pandemic pulled forward a lot of the IT spending, but we're starting to hear that IT budgets are going to be a little bit more resilient than first feared. And I was actually surprised to learn this recently, that software only accounts for 15% of overall IT spending. I mean, that sounds drastically low. Hillary, from your vantage point, what are you hearing from your companies and, and how that impacts software stocks going forward?
1: Yeah, it's not so much that revenues were pulled forward, and except in cases like with Zoom, Zoom and Microsoft Teams. As Matt alluded to, there were puts and takes across industries. Some was pulled forward and some was pushed back. But It was more so the case that valuations pulled forward in advance of expected future revenues. But we have definitely learned that IT budgets, especially in lockdown, are more resilient. Some companies spent much of 2020 just getting up and running, performing triage, enabling employees with video conferencing technologies, rudimentary workflows, and starting to connect more fully with their customers online. Now, they're focused on building out cloud-based applications, infrastructure, and all the enabling technologies that make it all work. And as a result of that, the spending environment is resilient. It's generally been quite strong year-to-date, and this is despite Q1 typically being a seasonally weaker quarter. However, the expectations, as we talked about, were high coming into this year, particularly for the higher growth names and stock prices have had to digest the Q1 results. Now, as it relates to the 15% of IT budgets being software, that will grow, absolutely. And a lot of that spend will be going to the cloud. The cloud is the delivery mechanism that offers universal access and theoretically always-on capability, just like a utility. And companies realize that if another business interruption were to occur, they just can't be left flat-footed as they were at the beginning of 2020. So they're accelerating their cloud adoption plans and other plans. This is great for the hyperscale vendors, Amazon AWS, Azure, Google Cloud Compute, but it's also great for a bunch of cloud native vendors which sit on top of those platforms. I mentioned Snowflake before in cloud data warehousing, MongoDB, which is a cloud database for unstructured and structured data, and also Datadog, which we own in cloud monitoring and observability, as well as just about any kind of SaaS application. That are out there, and Matt mentioned a number of those.
0: Matt, I'm going to move over to you. What are some
2: areas where companies are leaning on software to support growth? I'm going to give an example to what Hillary was talking about, and hopefully that answers your question too. But we saw in the pandemic, it wasn't really such a pull forward, but more of an acceleration of some of the trends that reflected companies' changing needs. For example, small and medium-sized businesses needed to start operating online instead of just in, you know, in-store or in-office. And a lot of those companies, they leaned on a company that is owned in the small and mid-cap strategies called HubSpot, which is a marketing automation software. So companies started relying on this as they moved online, and they're not going back. So they might have increased the penetration or, or accelerated a trend that was already going on. But companies aren't going to start using that product less. And one of the things that we're looking for as we analyze our companies that have accelerated their penetration is, is it suggested that anything's going to slow down? And, and here, the answer is no. There's multi-year growth drivers at HubSpot as, as companies started to like their automation software, they're also going to use their sales and services products and likely will try the operations stack that they just released. And this is now becoming a platform company that's going to enable small and medium companies to operate more efficiently, to grow, and to compete with larger companies that have a lot lot more resources.
0: And Matt, you mentioned efficiency and some of the applications for software are a provider of greater efficiency. They're, they're very obvious, like remote connectivity through Zooms and Teams. But what are some of the other areas in which software is making a difference or providing greater productivity? Hillary, do you have any thoughts there?
1: Sure, yeah. And actually, I'd love to add on to what Matt just mentioned on HubSpot. And uh, you know, just to paint that full picture, for all the SMB customers and larger who adopted HubSpot during during the pandemic, there are so many more who have yet to adopt when you think about the number of SMBs out there. And as the company provided flexible contract terms to customers during the pandemic, they're going to start reaping more and more of the benefits of that going forward. So that's a really fantastic story that we really appreciate. So yeah, I mean, there there are a lot of ways to go with that question, Jeff, and, and frankly, Matt hit on a lot of those areas already. So I might might just focus on one of the elements I find really interesting is the fact that cloud has actually completely changed the way that software is built and run. Software itself, so making it much much more efficient. Yes, because businesses are digitally transforming, they themselves are are building and running a whole lot more software. But the way we do that is changing, and for the first time, you can actually have better, faster, and maybe even cheaper as a result as a result of these newer technologies and methodologies. Although companies aren't even banking on cheaper, it ends up being cheaper because it's you know better and faster. E signatures are one of those areas we talked about as providing a lot of efficiency. But in terms of software itself, for instance, there's the low-code, no-code development movement. It's fascinating. These are essentially... Uh, visual development frameworks and platforms that enable developers to build applications without actually having to code. They can drag and drop a lot of libraries of stuff and what's interesting is this, yes, it accelerates efficiency and it opens up development more importantly to a whole new class of users and as we have a shortage of development skills globally this solves a huge problem. Another area is IT automation. It's a huge efficiency driver. It's the automation of routine and repetitive tasks. It's provided by the likes of UiPath which recently went public, and also Automation Anywhere, Microsoft, and a few others. It's a key area. There's also an entire movement toward what's called DevOps, It's short for Development Operations. It represents the convergence of the development function with the ongoing management of IT. Uh, these used to be distinct silos, but they've become increasingly intertwined as computing becomes more agile and more automated. Microsoft, GitHub, a private company, GitLab, and a name, JFrog participate there, among others.
0: Now, Hillary, you mentioned something that I I think needs to be talked about on a a software podcast, which is data breaches and cybersecurity, right? As we evolve to the cloud and you have this explosion of data, there's a heightened need to protect a lot of these corporate networks and personal data from attacks, right? We saw the ransomware attack on the Colonial Pipeline here recently back in 2017. Equifax exposed 147 million people's personal information to hackers and Unfortunately, I was one of those target back in 2013. Seems like this is happening on a more frequent basis. So what's your outlook on cybersecurity providers? Is this a, a secular trend that's going to continue?
1: Sure. Yeah, you, you bring up some great points, Jeff. Yeah, the outlook for security, cybersecurity solutions is extremely bright. With remote work, there is just a much broader attack surface or workspace which hackers can exploit and which makes corporations and governments vulnerable, as you pointed out. As a result, security is absolutely a heightened investment imperative, especially cloud security, as that's where a lot of workloads are migrating, but it's benefiting all areas. So CrowdStrike, for example, is a cloud security vendor who's working to consolidate the industry from the endpoint, the security industry from the endpoint, adding on more and more functionality, similar to what Palo Alto has been doing from the network standpoint. And Palo Alto is a strongholding of ClearBridges and of the MidCap Fund. And ultimately, those two will meet in the middle as they do in certain areas today, but there sure is a lot of uh, ground to cover and a lot of opportunity left in front of them. But this current security paradigm is, is benefiting a whole variety of areas within security and vendors. And I mentioned Palo Alto. It's certainly benefiting traditional network firewall vendors for Net and Palo Alto. But, but these companies are expanding their product portfolio, similar to what HubSpot is doing. And they're cloudifying their portfolios and they're addressing the current needs of corporations and governments. And I should mention that there's definite trend toward vendor consolidation and security. Corporations are trying to reduce the number of vendors they work with in order to reduce security sprawl, I'll call it, as well as the policy nightmares which result from security sprawl, which themselves can create a lot of vulnerabilities. It's more often those things which really leave a company vulnerable than it is, boy, the security product just didn't work. It's all the other stuff, the unforeseen issues that are created by a complex environment that create issues. Therefore, the the vendors we own and hold and love, we believe are benefiting disproportionately.
0: That makes perfect sense. Uh, Obviously, a a secular tailwind uh, over the next couple of decades. I think the last thing I want to talk about here uh, in relation to software is the fact that a lot of companies are transforming their business models from licensing to subscriptions. Obviously, you saw it with Microsoft Windows a couple of years ago. Why are companies doing this and how can this change present opportunities for investors over the next decade? Hillary, maybe I'll, I'll start off with you.
1: So, SaaS or software as a service was always a subscription based model, but the rest of the industry has followed suit for a number of reasons. First, it's easier to buy under a subscription model, it's certainly more flexible. The customer receives much more rapid and frequent updates when The subscription business is cloud hosted and the vendor is able to push down updates whenever they want to to the customer. Customers don't have to maintain the systems themselves, which eliminates expense and headaches. And the vendors tend to get paid more because they can exploit an arbitrage opportunity between what the customer was spending in total to maintain their own systems, including labor, and what they're willing to pay a cloud or SaaS-based vendor to take it all off their hands. So in that respect, it's very similar to renting a car versus buying it. Not only do you get to pay gradually over time, but you have relatively little maintenance to deal with. Then every three years or so, you get to have a new car. For that, you're actually willing to pay more. And every few months or even days in the cloud realm, customers get an updated version to work with, an updated version of the software. So for that and the agility, they're willing to pay more.
0: Now, now Matt, is this transition usually seamless? or you know is it is it a bumpy road when a company actually
2: does this transformation it can be bumpy and we've seen it uh, a number of times in the small and mid-cap space and as companies are trying to achieve that that ratable subscription model that they really want to present to investors in the financials a lot of times they need to you know they stop selling you know, longer license deals which typically recognize revenues up front and then that then replace them with you know one-year subscription. And then it, t- it can take many years for the income statement to become reliable again. Um, and it's imperative for companies to be active in communicating with their investors and with their customers, introducing non-GAAP measures to try to help explain the true business trends that aren't being reflected in the income statement. And so... Typically what happens is that there, there can be times where good companies who are making progress and, and you know advancing their agenda, investing in high return projects, that they stocks can become you know flat or down for a period of time. And then sometimes it can be till until that the consolidated financials start inflecting that that the stocks start to work again. So it's really imperative that companies are active in their communication and crisp with the messaging.
0: Well, we've covered a lot of ground here on the podcast. I just want to throw this question out to both of you. Do you have any closing thoughts on on maybe how to participate
2: in software's growing role in the economy? Matt, maybe I'll I'll start off with you. Yeah, look, as I alluded to a little earlier, software business models have a lot of attributes that we look for on the small and mid-cap team. Recurring revenue, high margins, high returns, They can be difficult to rip out and have an incumbency advantage, and also a lot of opportunities to disrupt. So we've been investing in software businesses for a long time. I'll also throw in there that oftentimes they have pricing power, which is something we look for in our companies in the de-risking process. And so we, we see a lot of opportunities for digital transformation to continue that disruption and continue gaining market share for our companies. And I want to just throw in one more item that, as Hillary and I were discussing earlier, that while the pandemic did advance the penetration of of a lot of these companies, and some of the stocks have struggled as as the market has looked more towards the reopening, one of the things that we do in our research and as we're optimizing or positioning the portfolio appropriately is we're making sure that the companies that we're investing in Are not just one-trick ponies that these companies have second and third acts uh, to their stories. Like for example, in DocuSign, where you know a lot of people, the e-signature trend was something that was ongoing. The pandemic accelerated it. But you know, this is a company that not only replaces paper signatures, but has the agreement cloud, which replaces and automates the entire management of documents for companies. So we think that growth can be sustained and elevated for many years to come. And, and, and that's the kind of thing that we're looking for and making sure that we have the opportunity and as, as we prioritize our portfolios.
0: Hillary, any closing thoughts?
1: Well, I thought Matt said that perfectly. And uh, I would only add on an interesting stat that I came across, which was early on in the pandemic, Stanford Research estimated that more than two-thirds of domestic GDP was created from within our homes. And software, along with the cloud, were the key enablers of that, plus the rest of the underlying technology, which enabled them. But that's pretty astounding. And it's not just software. It's really all of tech. Microsoft's Satya Nadella estimates that technology will grow as a percent of GDP from 5% today to 10% over the next 10 years. I and mean, that's a really exciting story and certainly worth paying attention to from our vantage point. And that's why we're so heavily invested in software, SaaS, security, and the cloud.
0: And from my perspective, a macro perspective, I I love that software is going to continue to eat the world because it's going to help the U.S. grow faster. If you boil down GDP, it's only two components, population growth and productivity growth. And while the U.S.'s demographics are still positive, which is in contrast to most of the developed world, we're only expected to see about half a percentage point of contribution to GDP for population growth over the next couple of decades. So that really means that in order for the economy to grow, you're going to need to see higher productivity growth, which software is going to help drive more and more as companies invest this cycle compared to last because there's much better growth prospects. You have a strong consumer. The banking system's in good shape. There's no real deleveraging pressures this time around. And maybe more importantly for software companies in the industry Higher productivity growth means lower unit labor costs and lower inflation, obviously, which has been a headwind to the industry over time. So, well, with that, we've covered a lot of ground. That's all the time that we have today. And I want to say sincere thank you to both of you, Hillary and Matt, for taking the time out of your busy days to provide us with a very comprehensive overview of the software industry and a, a lot of the opportunities on the horizon. So thank you.
1: Thanks so much for having us, Jeff.
0: Thanks, Chad. This is a lot of fun. And I want to say thank you to everybody who took the time to listen to today's podcast. I sincerely hope that all of you have a terrific Memorial Day weekend and that you'll join us for the mid-year update next month. As always, we welcome any questions, comments, and suggestions that you can email us at podcast at clearbridge.com. Stay safe and take care. Please note the following. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. The opinions and views expressed in today's podcast are of the individual speakers as of May 26th, 2021, and may differ from other managers or the firm as a whole, and are not intended to be a forecast of future events, a guarantee of future results, or investment advice. Any statistics referenced have been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but the accuracy and completeness of this information cannot be guaranteed. Neither Clear Ridge Investments or its information providers are responsible for any damages or losses arising from any use of this information.